Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Mark LaRoust. As the founder and chief purpose officer of the Ministry of Purpose, Mark is on a mission to eradicate career misery in the workplace and help build purpose-driven organizations and positive work cultures. He previously served as country manager of the Movember Foundation, where he helped raise $2.8 million for men's health and inspired over 100,000 fundraisers. Since then, Mark has worked with organizations such as Google, TEDx, INSEAD, The Guardian, and many more. Finally, his weekly podcast, The Unconventionists, was recently named Best Interview Podcast at the Podcasting for Business Awards and has reached over 160,000 downloads across 100 countries. Now, that is a very impressive list of achievements, and it has to be because Mark has to balance off the negative karma from his younger years when he wore dreadlocks, sold weed, and raised money for a flower-picking charity that didn't exist. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark LaRoust. Mark, <laughs> welcome to the show. That is a world's first. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you for putting me on the spot straight up. Just like, hey, let me tee you up with all the words. Yeah, you've done your research. That's awesome. Um, just, well, yeah. Thanks for being here. Just, just, just to, just to clarify, it was, it was two point eight million euros. Okay, because it's actually in dollars it would have been like three point four something. And okay. we've got now one hundred eighty-five thousand downloads for the podcast. It's my fault. I haven't updated my website and all that stuff. So apologies for that. So, so I appreciate how your clarification is on on the money you raised and on the downloads of the podcast and not on your dodgy past. <laughs> no, because you know your past is your past, and I think the quicker you own it, the you know, I, it's 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 funny you're saying that because I'm I, I don't know if 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 you know this or if I, if you heard me talk about this, but I'm in the middle of writing a book on on this topic that you and I both love, right? And it's really interesting because there's a section of the book where I basically talk about the power of your stories and how we have all these different types of stories within us, and that often the stories that we have the most guilt, shame, fear of being heard and seen or exposed actually hold some of the emotional glue that our audience are waiting for to connect with us and to not feel alone. And a previous guest of mine that came on my show called Boyd Varty talked about how you know healed trauma or healed guilt can become your medicine. So, so I appreciate you throwing me in the deep end with my dreadlocks, weed selling, flower picking. And it's so funny, you know, it's amazing that you said that story because I just wrote that story in the book. It's one of the introductions to the power of storytelling. And I use the story about that flower picking incident. 
<laughs> there is actually one of the this this is a storyteller who I, I I probably mentioned in every other episode called Matthew Dix, and he has an amazing story that you can find on YouTube. It's called mm. the Charity Thief. And uh, I, I think his is worse than yours because okay. he's he's pretending to raise money for the Ronald McDonald Cancer Foundation, and it That's just so happens just so happens that the person he's trying because he used to work for McDonald's, so he had the uniform. Yeah. So the 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 one person that he scams turns out to be someone whose whose wife passed away from cancer no. yeah it, it's it's a harrowing story oh my god uh, so yeah charity thief by matthew dix okay, <laughs> well. go, i don't know what i've got i've caught right you know i've caught my flowers for africa that's the name of the chapter right now but uh <laughs> I'll, I'll, ha- I'll have to i'll have to think of something more more poignant i like that uh, flowers for africa is amazing i think flowers for africa is, is is a winner so one of the things i wanted to talk to you about you know you you mentioned something about me having done my my homework and and one of the things you do is you're a podcast host if my if my numbers are more or less accurate you've now interviewed between the podcast and your previous life something like 286 people that's the that's the, the updated number i've got and and i wanted to talk to you a little bit about your approach to the podcast because your podcast is just about the opposite of mine in a way because for someone who who loves storytelling and talks about storytelling all the time when it comes to the podcast i don't really care about people's stories Mm. i i I never ask about their stories Mm. because very early on i found that one they've usually have shared those stories Mm. in other podcasts which i have listened to research for my own interview and also I found it difficult to manage that because if I'm interviewing a speaker, mm. often I'm going to get, you know, a three to four minute, very, you know, prepared story mm. that, that, you know, generally explains who they are and where they mm. come from. And that's fine. But if you ask someone who hasn't been giving a ton of podcast interviews, you might get into a 10, 15 minute answer yeah. that meanders. And, mm-hmm. it, it, and, you know, most podcasts at most you tend to have like an hour with people. I don't want to have. 25% of that it go on one answer yeah. necessarily. So when it comes to yours, how much of their story in the sense of their background mm. do you want to get out in, in the show? It's a good question. So I've, I've got to, I've got to kind of caveat that with, you know, how I started the unconventionalist podcast. This is back in 2015. There wasn't, you know, the podcast was around, it'd been around for a while, but it wasn't as popular as it is today, right? Like we've got over 2 million podcasts now. Back then, I don't know how many, like 500,000, maybe 200,000. I don't know, but it, it was, it was very niche. And, um, and the reason why I launched it was because I kept on, you know, I could go on a, on a long story, but the short version is that I was at this weird crossroad where I spent a lot of time with people who you and I might, you know, admire or, or be inspired by or read books or whatever it is because of the job I had at November. I had access to a lot of these really inspiring people. And at the same time, I was coaching these individuals, professionals, entrepreneurs who were trying to make a difference or make an impact. And the stories that they were telling themselves as to why they couldn't do it, for me, was fascinating compared to what I was really hearing. So they made up that you're either born a certain way or you're not. You either have these gifts or you're not. You're a great storyteller or you're not. But there was nothing superhuman about everyone who I met. And they had stories that not a lot of people were hearing, which is about self-doubt, about their failures, about shame, about guilt, trauma, all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, if we can normalize the conversation, then we can normalize the human condition. 
And that was why I started the, the unconventionalist. And, and for that to happen, I needed to create pretty quickly a safe space for people to open up and share their stories, but probably in ways that they haven't done before. So, you know, out of all the guests I've had, I think the, 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 the guests, the episodes where I felt were like the less maybe compelling or impactful were those who I either researched way too much. And so the episode became about me proving to my guests how much I knew about them, as opposed to me being vested and interested and curious about what they had to say and, and give, right? Or guests who are so well-polished in media training that they just regurgitate the same thing. And like, they'll say something as if, it, you know, and I know it's not original or I know it's not new. So I, you know, especially the book that I'm writing now, I'm trying to teach people that your stories is your superpower. Like your story is your superpower. And so if I need to show that, I need to, to, to demonstrate in my podcast that when someone shares their story, you're going to be more emotionally invested in them and what they're up to in the world than if it was just surface level. That's my opinion, my belief. Some people, you know, don't believe that. And so a lot of it is I'll, I'll know some areas of their life, but I tap into my curiosity. And I, that's, that's what I lean on. You know, I, you're right. I've had close to 300 interviews now over the years. And it never fails to amaze me how everyone is fascinating and interesting if you give them an opportunity and if you help them navigate that process. And I happen to be, you know, a story shepherd of some sort. And, and I, and I, some guests come on my show have never shared their story before. It's the first time or they've never seen how their story has value or doesn't see how their story can be relevant to anybody else. And I love to find those moments. I love to find those moments where tears come out. I love to hear those moments where we open up for the first time about something and I've had them, you know. I've had a few of those. And those are the moments that make me keep on showing up on the mic. Something you said that I thought was pretty interesting about how you might have prepared too much. Because I, sometimes I feel, not that I, I don't feel like I've overprepared. I feel like I spend too much time preparing, which is, is but, but that's usually because, because I haven't gotten what I was looking for. So what, what happens with the way I prepare is, so say you, for example. One of the very first things I do is just look for podcasts that that the person has been a guest on. And then I'll listen to one or two or three. And and sometimes I've made enough notes out of one. And the note is not, oh, this is a great story. I want to hear Mark tell it again. The note is, okay, I need to know more about this. I feel he just touched the surface of this. I'm not sure I really understand why this makes made sense for him then I, I have something down. Because I, I would say, you, know, you I know that you've done this, but what I didn't get is why you why that happened. Or why how did that move from how did you move from this thing to this other thing? And and sometimes you I've found myself listening to three hours of a guest and either they explain the story so well that I don't have follow-ups or I'm like, if I ask this, they're going to have to give me all of this background. And then this is the show, right? So so that's the... So, so what have you found? Sorry, go on. I was going to say, because just, you know, for, for context basis, people listening or watching, I think it, everything depends on what your podcast is about and what lens are you looking through. So, you know, if my podcast is about sharing the story of the ups and downs and lessons learned from both of people who dead to be different and go against the, you know, status quo, then that's the lens I'm going to look at my guests. But if you're looking at, I don't know, how do people use story in their business or their life to change, transform people, you know, it's just, it's just, the, I think the lens of what your podcast is determines the kind of questions you ask. 
For sure, for sure. You just said something now that I think I'm going to pull you up on. You said, you know, if I... If I'm speaking to people and I want to understand how they've done things in a different way, you're gone against the grain. And obviously your podcast is called The Unconventionalists. But you said before that if you can normalize the way people feel about their struggles and the way they communicate about their struggles, you're normalizing the human condition. So isn't there a bit of a paradox there in in a sense where you... This is coming across as being unconventional or against the grain... Whereas actually, we all go through the struggles. Yeah. In a sense, it's almost the opposite. Well, I think, no, no, what I think what you speak to is the, you know, the universal experience of being human, which is messy. And I think, you know, what happens is listening, I was listening to an interview and it made me think, you know, we are a tribe of misfits, I think, if I had to summarize what the unconventionalists are. But at the same time, what can feel like a very lonely experience, what can feel like a, you know, I, I'm only the one seeing this or going through this. And it's what I teach my clients, what I'll be teaching through in my book, which is your, your unique life experience actually holds a universal experience because what you go through, I can see myself go through too, right? And, and it's no longer about the, I moved from Brazil to Spain or why I went from France to England. It's like, what was it like to have to, you know, set up shop in a new country, make new friends, feel like, you know, you, we can relate to that. And so what I try and do is speak to a specific type of people, I guess, who hopefully inspire others on their journey to not feel alone, you know, to feel seen, heard and supported on this journey. And so you're right. I think it's, you know, that quote that says, I would never want to be part of a group that would have me as, as a member, you know? And I ask, you know, if you, if you listen to my show, every, every episode, I finish it with the same question, which is what does being unconventional mean to you? Now I'll tell you what in in you know I think I've just released yesterday the 159th episode in in 160 episodes maybe one or three max completely gave me a, a, a different kind of answer than I expected otherwise they are all the same answer just said differently which effectively is like march to your own drum dare to be yourself you know stop comparing yourself to others like it's always coming back to the same thing so in being unconventional it's actually the thing we all seek to be which is the irony yes <laughs> yes there is a big theme that runs through any conversation about about storytelling and vulnerability which is always the you don't want to set yourself apart by showing how you're weak or or whatever. Whereas the truth is the opposite: is we are all broken to some extent. What is that? Um, I think it's the Anna Karenina quote, which I disagree with. Which is um, all happy families are happy the same way, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, and and I disagree with that. I think that human beings are when we are unhappy or when we, you know substitute for whatever negative negative feeling you want to put in there, we are we are unhappy in very very similar ways. Which is why making yourself vulnerable in stories and speeches in in whatever way you're communicating tends to be so powerful. It's because of that relatability and not because that. You know, because we're different. Yeah, I think it's that. And I would also add an extra layer, which is when we see someone who does, we see a part of us that we wish we had more of. So I think when we come across someone who has the courage or whatever you call it, the willingness to share a bit about their lives. So say, say example, you know, the stories that I shared about used to sell weed and have dreadlocks, all this kind of stuff. It's not about the story. Someone else listening in the audience, 
may have never had that kind of experience, but they're like, oh my God, you can say those kind of stories and not get shut down or not get like arrested or, you know, the world's not going to implode. Oh, where else could that show up in my life? Where else in my life am I not giving myself permission? Or where else are some stories owning me as opposed to me owning them? So I would agree to that. And I would add the layer of, I think it's, it's, man, it's it's like the, the, I think if you go back to the foundation of why we used to go to theater and I forgot who it was, some, some person famously quoted for it. Carl Jung, is it? We used to go to the place to see our, our shadows. Basically, the reason why we used to go and see plays was to, or even films today, was to see our shadows being reflected back to us, being able to see characters that who represented parts of us that we don't own or accept. And so by seeing them being played out, it enabled us to feel a little bit more whole. I don't can't remember who some person was, but <laughs> but some person was was a wise person. Um, there is something you said um, somewhere. And uh, I also wanted to to just clarify, uh, and, and if ne- if needed, push back. Which was, <clears throat> I, I can't remember. I, you, you were, I think, going through your own backstory, and I think you said something along the lines of, you know, that that it's romantic to tell uh, an origin story that makes sense, uh, but you know that's not how life is, or you know, it's a lot messier than that. Does that sound like something you yeah, would have said? Yeah, yeah def- definitely. I, th- I think it's like when when we come up with a very well-packaged, put-together background story that makes total sense to an audience, it's it's easy to forget that while you were living that story, it didn't feel like a cohesive, valuable lesson that will one day be shared publicly. It feels, you know, I don't know what the swearing is on this podcast, but like it, it feels it, crap. It's, a, it's, it's, it's acceptable. Crap yeah, no, is not, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, not swearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you feel like crap, right? Yes, it's, it's, yes. And and I think I wish that again. It's I always try and bridge the gap between who we perceive or how we perceive ourselves with how we perceive the world, and particular people who are doing things that we wish we were doing or that we inspired by. And I just wish we had a, a smaller gap. And in fact, if I could have a magic wand, I would actually say just be kinder to yourself in the process because it's it's again the messiness of being human is a universal experience. But sometimes. We can sit back, whether that's a coach with you, working with you, reading my book or whatever. It's getting some help on how do we make sense of it? How do we take all these bits of our stories and put them together in a cohesive and valuable way? And so that when you share it, it's the, it's, it's the truth in the sense that you're saying the story, but you, you might, it might be easy for people to forget that. Oh, when you overcame that challenge and you came over the other side so you can share that lesson, damn, it was hard. You know, you know, I'm going through that with my book. I wake up sometimes and I'm going to show up at, you know, at my page and I'm going like, I don't want to do this. Or who am I to do this? People way smarter than me have written books about this. People way more capable than me are doing this. It's going to be all be it. You, know, you go through all these patterns, but I'm going to come up with this book. And one day I'll tell the story about this book and I'll forget maybe how viscerally it felt at this point in time. So it'll, it'll make it just like a rounder experience. I think, I, I think that's what you meant. Yeah, I think that it's, it can come across as, as very romantic or can come across as even artificial if if whatever whatever parts of your life you've put together to make into an origin story are too neat but if it is too neat and too polished then there is a pretty good chance that you've left out some of the best parts now i you know at the end of the day there is no way you're going to tell any type of origin story that is going to be i mean if it's going to be 
include everything, then you're going to be telling it until you're no longer around. Um, so it has to be massively edited. And most people's opportunities to tell some type of origin story, you have five minutes, you have 10 minutes at most. Um, you know, whenever you're going to, unless it's an hour long podcast, but even so, you are having to leave so much on the cutting room floor that it has to be okay. Why, why are you doing this thing you're doing now? When did you realize that that was important or wh what changed in your life that got you on the path to be doing what you're doing now? And you obviously going to have to pick the, the parts that are easier to tell that make sense more that, you know, hopefully you're not just picking the parts that make you look better, because then I would argue you're going to end up not looking, you might look better, but you won't connect as much. Can I share sure. a quick story on that? Cool. So this is going in the book anyway as well. So I had a client who came to me and worked with this client around, you know, how to unpack and, you know, so own the story so they could go out and share it in public places because they're getting invited to share the story more and more. And, and so we go through their story and on the outside, it looked like they had these pretty amazing achievements that like we're talking hitting like top of the game in three different areas of completely different from sports, music to military. Right. And it almost makes it sound superhuman. So as I'm going through all this and like these amazing achievements, in the back of my head, I'm just like going, this, there's something missing. There's something that I'm not getting here. Because if we stuck to that level of just like, hey, manage to smash it there and do this and this, there's no relatability. There's no humanness. It's almost like a superhero-like, but without the dark side. Does that make sense? So as we dig deeper, and as I start asking more questions and going, turns out my client had been brought up in an environment with an, an abusive and violent father who suffered substance abuse. And in that moment, I was like, oh, there it is. That's the, that's the reason why you spend the rest of your life trying to protect others. That's the reason why you, you're showing up today to try and change the way that we can create environments for all this kind of stuff. And I said, and when, have you ever shared this story? And he's like, never. And I never will. It's not possible. And I knew that that was the story that would tie everything together, that that was the entry point for people to feel like they could connect to my client, right? Well, we did the work, we did, packed all this, you know, went off and started practicing sharing the story. About a year later, I think, I got an email saying, you know, it's not ready until it's ready. And uh, with a link to a podcast where my client shared the story for the first time in the podcast. And like, as a result, the DMs, messages, comments and stuff like that, and even like the opportunities that came as a result of it completely changed. And so I often use this example as, as a way of saying, look, we're not all ready to share these stories. But if you go up on stage and start saying how amazing you are and how you smash that life and how you never had any issues and you, there's nothing dark about you or shameful or guiltful, it's never going to work. You know what I mean? Like Scott Harrison's a perfect example. Again, I, I feature him as well in the book. He is the founder of Charity Water. And uh, if you listen to it, he's got like, if you're talking about like a really neat background story, origin story, he's just got it like to a T. And you can look it up. You can Scott Harrison, Charity Water story. You'll, you'll see loads of videos on YouTube. The one, he, you know, anyway, but he talks about how he spent 10 years as a nightclub promoter, taking every drug in the world apart from heroin and being, you know, addicted to sex, drugs, alcohol. So he says all this stuff, but then he uses it for the sake of why he ended up going and, and volunteering in charity. They've raised millions, millions, right? For like really worthy causes. And he still, people still give him money, even though he says on stage that he used to be a drug addict, alcoholic, gambling, you know, do you know what I mean? So I think a lot of people need to realize that when you're going to share your story, if you're going to share it and with the intention of engaging or connecting in some way, you're going to have to 
share some form of vulnerability. Well, that, that means to you, right? Vulnerability and authenticity is different, you know, depending on people. But I, I wish, I wish more people could see that. And I've had clients, man, like so many times I had clients, we get, I call it like the golden nugget. It's like, it makes, it just makes everything click. It, you, it makes so much sense, but often it's so emotionally charged and it's so vulnerable and scary that they're not quite yet ready. But when they do, it, it changes everything. I had a guest um, a while back on the podcast called Connor Neal. And when we were chatting, he, he said something along the lines of, you know, something happened in, in your life from between ages of typically five to 12. And whatever that thing was, it, it um, conditions a lot of how you see the world and interact. And what he says is, you know, he, he I think, had moved from being a very popular kid in Ireland to being a, a nobody in the US. And it has this typical American movie cafeteria scene in his memory of being kind of a, you know, Johnny No Mates and, and how he felt invisible and how a lot of his life had been about making himself visible and how, you know, if you're someone who struggled with, with money as a kid, then money is going to be a much more important driving force in your life. And I, this is something I found about myself that I didn't necessarily know because when I was trying to write sort of my own origin story, which is really difficult to do, and I don't advise anybody to try and do it for themselves. And I, you know, I was just turning over a whole bunch of old stories and I, I had this thing come back up to my to my mind about how you know, although my family wasn't poor or anything, we went I went to a fancy private school, so all the other kids had money and they had big houses and whenever there was a school trip they could always go on the school trips and and I never could. You know, everybody was buying surfer clothes. This was the early 90s. And I, I just bought a knockoff surfer clothes. And and then I started looking around for other things and how doing the thing that was going to make me more financially safe seemed to be a driving force that I had never really realized. And I'm like, oh, was that because when I was in school, money was a thing on the back of my mind all the time as a thing that made me different? Um, and yeah, it's always going to be something that is uncomfortable or at least was uncomfortable at a time. Because if not, you know, why do you care so much about it? 100%. Yeah. And I say the same thing. I really believe the same thing. I actually say with clients in, in workshops and like, uh, yeah, I say about, yeah, five, five, twelve. I agree with that, about that range. There usually is a story. What I love about it is that most people don't even see the connection between that event and why they do what they do. Because that's kind of what I'm interested in, right? It's like, how do you how do you talk about why you do what you do in a, in a compelling and engaging way? And there are so many stories where people go, oh, that's why I do what I do because of X that happened, you know, when I was eight, a bit like you, that story that you shared. And it is hard. It is hard to do it on your own. It is hard to try and do it on your own. That's why I'm, that's why I'm trying to write this book to have like a guide. Like the, literally the book is so that I could be in that room with whoever's reading it by them and walk them through every exercise and, and workshops and all the stuff that I've learned over the years so that I've got a guide and a walking hand. Because then it's hard. I've seen you give this as advice before as one of the, one of the ways to, to uncover one of those moments in your story. And, and I thought it was interesting. I hadn't come across this one before. And I think what you said was look for, for three moments when you could go back in time and give yourself some advice. Can you just 
elaborate on that for a bit? Yeah. So look, you know, what I've learned over the years of, of working with hundreds of, of clients and spoken to thousands of people, this stuff is that everyone's got different access points, basically, is kind of like the short version. And so for some clients, you can say, hey, was there a defining moment in your life that really had an impact on you? And they can go, oh, yeah. You know, for me, it's easy. It's when I'm six years old. You've heard the story before. I'm in school. I'm getting made bullied by my teachers, all this stuff, right? For others, it's harder. For others, like, I, I don't think there's, you know. So one of the access points that I use is, okay, are there three events in your life that happened that if you could go back in time to give you some advice, you would? What are those moments and why? And usually that is where people can go, oh, yeah, when, you know, when, when, when my mom died or when my dad left us or when I walked into my brother trying to kill himself, like all those kinds of things, or when I got dumped or when I failed at that exam, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the event is. There's going to be a moment that left a mark. And it's not that you would want to change it. And I don't say if you could go back in time and change it, because most people will say, oh, I don't want to change anything because I wouldn't be who I am if we went for this. And I agree with that. No, it's if you could give yourself a piece of advice, you know, and it would be, don't be so hard. Like it could be like, don't be hard, so hard on yourself. You know, for example, me, like when I do this exercise, if I go back to me in that classroom, I would be like, it's not your fault. It's this teacher is having a tough time. They're, they're projecting their shit on you. It's you, you're okay. And you're going to turn out okay. Don't worry. It's not because you can't spell. It's not because you can't read out loud very well that you're going to end up in, you know, dying alone, spending a cat piss. Like you're going to be all right. You're going to meet someone amazing. You're going to get family. You're going to go to do the work that, you know, lights you up on fire on most days. Not every day, but most days. And I find that tool to be a, a, an access point. There's some those of others you can use, but I think that one is like the time machine time capsule is one of them. You've said something else that I have come to by my my own efforts. And I think it's worth explaining to people because it's a distinction that, that most people miss, which is that um you know a lot of people love saying how you know, you're, you're not a hero of your story, whoever you're addressing is or whatever, which I, I think can can be misconstrued and, and misinterpreted. So one thing I've said, and I know you've said it too, is something like the story is the story is about you, but it's not for you. Yeah, yeah. I say that all the time. It's because, again, my this, this, the saying I say all the time in, in workshops, talks, and is that someone somewhere woke up this morning to hear your story, to not feel alone and to have hope about their future. And so if you understand that premise, then you get that it's selfish to keep your story to yourself because the only reason why you're not sharing your story is because your attention's on yourself, right? Like every single time I talk to people about this, when they go, I say, so why, why are you not sharing what your story? Like the list of things that comes up, it's from, you know, surface level stuff to I don't see what the return of, you know, uh, my investment is to share my story, what's going to be the impact of my bottom line to I'm just scared that people are going to judge me, criticize me, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. But ultimately, what I say is, where's your attention? And they'll say, oh, it's, so they'll, they'll say, it's on you, right? Like, yeah. Well, what if you put your attention on someone out there who needs to hear you? Maybe it's the client you're trying to serve. Maybe it's the problem you're trying to, you know, solve or whatever it is. What happens then? And, and you know, my Dan, Daniel Priestley was the one that who kind of put it in that sentence. Because I used to say, make your audience more important than you looking good. That was kind of what I used to say. And then Daniel was like, oh, it's not about being in the spotlight. It's about becoming the spotlight. What he meant by that was, it's, it's kind of what I've been teaching is, if, you know, right now I've got some lights right on me. And so as I'm seeing myself in this video with you, I'm like, oh, I've got some wrinkles coming up. I've got bags, man. My daughter's been getting up at 5 a.m. in the middle of the night. Like, oh, I've got receding airline and gray hair. Like, all of this is me, right? I've thought about me, me, me. 
But then if I look at you and I imagine I turn the spotlight on you and I put the light on you, and then I'm like, oh, there's an awesome human here who's also passionate about story. He's making the time to be curious about my story and stuff. What can I say or do to be of service? Then it changes, it switches. So that's why it's not about being in the spotlight. It's about becoming the spotlight. And so the same thing with your story. It's about you, but it's not for you. And as we get to our slightly more advanced stage, I think the less the spotlight is on us, the better. One hundred percent. The other 100%. day, the other day, I was, I was in, I was in the mirror, and I thought, oh, I think this hat I was wearing has, uh, has left a mark on my forehead, and then I, and I paid attention, just like. Oh no, that's like a, <laughs> that's a just a, that's just a wrinkle that's always there because I'm you know too many express I'm too I have a, my face is too expressive. <laughs> do you know how, do you know what I had like I had my first white hair in my mustache and it freaked me out for like two days. Like honestly, I was just like, oh no, death is knocking on the door. My mortality is becoming more apparent. Like I've got I could I can't run away and ignore it anymore. You know. So yeah, and 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 that's why I think it's. You know, I go through the five blockers of storytelling in, in the book around what are the five most common story blockers. And and it never fails to amaze me to, to hear how many people think that their story hasn't got value, doesn't matter, isn't interesting to anyone or anyone. I've heard that from people. Dude, if you heard their story, you'd be like, oh, my days. Like some of the most extraordinary stories of, of overcoming adversity, challenges. I've been in tears with clients and they still think... Yeah, but surely everyone, everyone's going through, you know, and you go like, you can't, you're so close to it. You can't see it, right? Like you need to get some perspective on it. Yeah. A line I heard or invented, can't remember, but it was something like, if you, if you don't see, if you don't see the value in where you are is because you can't see how far you've come. Mm. And I remember, I remember saying this on, on a talk where what I was saying to people doesn't matter, like just think where you are now. It could be where you are health wise, could be where you are financially, professionally, geographically. You know, I'm, I'm in, you know, this works better for me than for you, perhaps, even though you've gone all around the place, but like I'm, I'm in Barcelona now. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't born here. And there was, there was a whole thing that happened or a whole bunch of things that happened to get me from where I was born to here. And to a lot of people, you share that and they're like, wow, you live here, you live there, you travel to all these places. And you're like, eh, you know, I was there for a while and then I decided I wanted more sun. So I left London and I came to Spain and then I was this place and then I got a pr promotion and I was, you know, it's like to you, it's like, meh. No, it doesn't doesn't feel overly exciting, but to some people, it's like, wow, you live in Barcelona. <laughs> I know it's like exactly. I think you, but yeah, I get it. Like you know, we're we're also not taught how to appreciate and celebrate. You know, really, who we are, what we bring, what we've achieved, what we've done. Because there's also an element of I don't want to come across as arrogant. I don't want to come across as self centered, or you know. Whereas again, you know, not not to bore your audience. And I, I, it's like one of the introductory chapters of the book where I talk about where I did really discover the power of story. The, sh the short version is I was invited to go and give up my first talk. Basically, this, this, this software financial company reaches out to me and says, can you come and give a talk on the back of my first book that I wrote? And, and I said, you do know, I just wrote a book about how to quit your job and, and find like work you love. I'm not sure I'm the person you want to bring to your company. And they're like, no, no, no. We think you'd relate well to the millennials and younger generation, all this stuff. Anyway. So I prepared this talk where I was like the seven steps to finding meaning and purpose in your work. And I mapped out this process. Like I was really HBR articles and did all this research, blah, 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 blah. I go in there and I do this presentation. I'm feeling pretty confident about 
how I'm rocking it, right? I'm just like going, this is going great. And I've got like these stats and these facts and slides and fonts and even pictures. And we get to, we get to the end and I'm just like, you know, Q&A went really well, great. And I look at my, you know, arrogantly look at like my contact, the HR, and I'm like, so how did it go? Did you enjoy that? And she, and basically he was like, yeah, it was all right. But what we really wanted was to hear more about you and how how you ended up doing what you're doing and, and what you faced and overcame. And I was like, wait, you want to hear about me? I spent my entire life thinking that the more I heard about me, the better chance I had at life. And it dropped. Like, like I was like, wait, it just, it was just confusing me. It, my whole brain, my wire was like, wait, I've, every time I've done something, someone would say, never say that to anybody, you know, because if anybody finds out, they'll never do business with you. Like that was kind of my mentality around this. And so when that was the best gift that one of my clients gave me, because after that, I started experimenting with at the start, introducing a little bit more about me or telling a personal story. And that led to me being invited on my TEDx stage. And, and again, it's, it's, I still to this day have to remind myself that people want or need to hear a little bit about a background story to understand who I am, why I'm here and why they should care. I have an uncle who doesn't matter what's going on he will always find a way to bring the focus back onto himself so <laughs> he's a he's an amazing cook uh, he's like a professional cook made himself into a professional cook in his later years and he was the one that usually cooked um, christmas dinner and charged the family but anyway and <laughs> my we are all cooks with an Argentinian italian family and one year I think the my mom suggested, you know, why don't Francisco and the kids, you know, quote unquote, the kids uh, cook Christmas dinner because they all cook very well. And, and then we spread the, the effort around a little bit more. So I, you know, I made the risotto. My brother made my brother made the risotto. I made some, I don't know, some type of meat and someone else made something. And my uncle made like a salad, like he made the most bare bones Caesar salad you've ever seen. It was essentially leaves, croutons. And I don't even think there was a sauce, right? And so we're unveiling all these amazing dishes and everybody's sitting down to eat and he just leans over and goes, have you, have you tasted how amazing this salad is? <laughs> it's like, oh, let me tell you how I made this. I was like, no, it's it's leaves are crouton. And I was like, no, 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 there is a process. We got <laughs> so, so the stuff that doesn't endear you to other people in real life works amazingly on stage whenever you're communicating to uh, larger groups of people make it not about you well you have to make it about you um but yeah when you date also not not a very good approach that's right no. i forgot who it is i want to say guy kawasaki or someone like that i forgot who it is who starts and ends every presentation with a personal photo i think it oh, is it guy kawasaki i forgot who it was anyway it, and and no matter what the, the the presentation, that's how they did it. Um, and I get and I get it now. It's I, it's still hard for me. Like I, I've been doing this for years now. I've done I don't know how many talks. It's still hard for a part of my brain to think that if I go and speak to a group of you know whether that's executives, CEOs, or like that they want to hear a weird story about me before I begin instead of just going into it. And especially I'll say this. You know we've got colleagues in the industry 
who've done very, very well, built these amazing businesses, and I love their model and I love what they're doing, but I significantly disagree with an element, which is they basically say nobody cares about you and what your background story is. They just want to care about how you solve their problem. There's truth in that. I think if you just make it about you, then you alienate everyone. But I also think if you just make it about business and them, you miss that emotional element that would just connect you just a little bit more. And and I really wish that everyone somehow shared their story in some shape, way or form. You know, it's I, I find that sometimes it's just a gateway to to humanity or to human connection. So I, I, I did a talk on I did a talk on change recently and I wanted to share the story of Dustin Sandlin on the backwards bike. Um, I don't know if you've heard this one, so it's pretty basic. So Dustin Sandlin is this American science engineer and science communicator that has a, a channel on YouTube called Smarter Every Day and has like 10 million subscribers. And one of his engineer friends challenged him to ride a backwards bike. So they changed the cog in the in the steering wheel and then the bike, you know, you turn the bike right and the tires go left and the opposite. And he tried it and it was really, really hard. Like his brain just couldn't accept that it wasn't working and he committed to trying it for five minutes every day until he learned how to ride it. And it took him eight months to do it. Um, so I wanted to use that story, but I thought it's a bit cold. I don't want to open with with a story, like a random story about someone that is not me. So I I remembered while I was trying that my kid, who who now just turned five, but when she got a bicycle not that long ago, she she started riding it in a weird way where her feet went back and forth on the pedals instead of going round the pedals and she just and then later i said hey, it was fine well she should let's her let her do it the way she wants to and when i tried teaching her i think maybe a month or two later the proper way of riding her brain couldn't accept it her brain just like no no no, but i'm, I'm doing it right it's like not really no um and then you know i i used the my kid's story to begin with and then i transitioned to the other one and then you speak to people afterwards and i had an i had one more story later on about my kid and those the kid stories you know the parenting stories are the ones that people oh you know i really like that story about your kid and whatever because they're just so relatable now if you make the whole thing about your kids it's probably not the yeah, most suitable 100%. thing it's like it's like what you said i think it's an i love that it's like an entry point to humanity it just <laughs> mm-hmm. is it's kind of yeah and it's a lot and i'm smiling because i you know on my, on my daughter's fourth birthday we gave her a bike and I took her out to learn and I'm sure there was this kind of like, what do you just pedal? Keep going all the way around. And I'm sure there was like a bit of like, you know, kind of what, like, or stopping or anyway. Yeah. And, and, and I love it. So for me, it's still a lesson. I still have to remind myself. I still have to go, you know, elements of me because I, my default is, is a little bit like kind of the story that you shared. And my default is that my format is very much like these stories, like, I come across, a, I don't know, a memoir or a story or a documentary, and I'm like, oh, that'd be a great link to the point I'm trying to make, you know? And so, so I'll start with that. And I can do that for a whole hour, no problem. But at the end of it, it always goes down to that. And actually, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just finish, finish with, on, on this point with this note. A few years ago, I hired a camera woman to follow me on my talks to do like a, like a kind of a promo real thing. So she'd seen me give a few talks and I, back then, before I understood anything about public speaking as a, as a business, I had like, I don't know, five or six different talks and, you know, speaking about all the, everyone was like, can you do about change management? 100%. Can you come and do about procrastination? Oh, of course. Can you talk about time management? You got it. You know, I was just like anything that would pay the bills, I'd be like, no problem. And so I remember I was doing so many different talks during the week because I knew I was booking it to film. I got to this venue and uh, we're in the back room and I'm trying to get my laptop out. And I'm going to say back room, it sounds really 
cool. It's actually just like the bathroom or the toilet probably or something. And um, I'm getting my stuff ready and I panic because I'm like, what talk am I giving? And I don't, I'm like, I was just like, I don't remember the, I don't remember the talk. I don't remember the, my structure because, and she says, oh, don't worry. You come, like, what did she say? You're up, you're the most, you're most compelling when you go off script. And it's still to this day stuck with me because it's like, what, what, what do you mean? She's like, well, those moments in between your, your structured, polished talks, that's when the audience, you're most connected and impacting the audience. Yeah, I think I think that is perhaps a dangerous lesson that some people can get out of that, which is if you're not Scott Stratton, who is famous for having, you know, three three stories in his co-keynote and everything else is basically him improvising and doing stand-up on stage. Um, by his own admission, he doesn't practice his talk. I think he just like, I'm going to share this story, this story, this story. Everything else is just him going off the cuff. But the vast majority of people I find, or at least most people I know, the the super casual off-script bits I'm doing, they only really work because I'm so rock solid on everything else that if if someone says something on the chat and I feel like riffing on that for a bit, I can do that. And there's no problem. I know where that where I have to come back to. But if if you put me in front of an audience and I, I don't really have a, a structure that I that I know pretty well. I wouldn't think that what you the, the end result you're gonna get there is gonna be anything people would necessarily want to pay me for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I get that. It's, there's, I don't know. If, I don't know if that's the speaker you mentioned, but I remember seeing a talk one day online, and you basically this guy gave gives talks with zero. He's the guy who does the the millennial rant. If you don't know, like you need to know this one because you know this is where this is where you live. Um, look up, look up the millennial rent, which has had many different versions so far. But Scott Stratton is a guy who has the uh, has a man bun. He always wears the sort of like black polo shirt. He's got some tattoos showing, um, and he's got a man bun and a big beard. So he's the least corporate looking guy you see, but he's absolutely amazing. Yeah. No, I get, I get that. And, and I agree. I think, I, I think preparation is key. Like, you know, I would agree with that. I think for most people, the problem for me is that I then use it as a crutch or as a, or as a, or as a safety net or as a, what's the defense mechanism. And that stems from more childhood stuff, wounds around, like, I'm not smart. I'm not good enough. I'm not capable and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I have the capacity and the ability to be way more in the moment, improvise. I, I, I have, I, I have that gift or skill, whatever you want to call it. I know I do because it's, I've done it over and over again, but I, I'm, a, I'm terrified of it. I don't know about you, but the more people pay me, the more I feel like I need to be so solid, right? Like I remember when I asked like my first five figure, you know, <laughs> I was just like, no one's ever going to say yes, you know? Because the first talk I ever gave, I think it was 200 pounds, 250 pounds. And that was nuts. Like I used to work at a charity, right? So I don't know how many days of work that represent, but I was like, that's so crazy. I'm going to get paid 250 pounds for like an hour. You know, now obviously like fees are, are way higher, but it, it's still, still to this day, every single time I, I ask for a fee and I, and I, and I get that fee, I then go into panic mode of, I need to make sure that it's rock solid. Whereas I could probably do less of that preparation, trust a little bit more into, you know, the process and leaning into what's in their space. And, but I think that's a different level. I think, I think the more you speak, the more masterful you become at that. Yeah. Yeah. And something else that is worth keeping in mind as a, as a speaker or, or as anyone who sells 
their services and, and, and you eventually have to charge in the thousands is to just think not of because we I think we default to sort of thinking of what used to be either an hourly rate or a monthly pay whereas it's it's not that it always has to be the change that you might cause right so because if you just I, I have had someone talk talking about I think value selling or value pricing and they said how much is one client or one contract or one employee that doesn't leave worth to this company and i think you know because that's that's an area that both of us speak to if you're talking about companies about purpose about engagement about things of that nature their cost the, the turnover costs are so high that if they keep one employee for a year longer because that person was inspired by something you said in that talk you've paid your talk has been paid you know two three times over so 100 it's about what pro, what pro, what is the cost of the problem you're solving yeah I think yeah. that if I had to summarize is what I say to people. When people tell me like, how much should I charge? Or this, I was like, well, what is the cost of the problem yeah. solving? Because yes. what bigger the problem, the bigger you charge. And I remember, like we were at a social gathering, right? With like in our community with uh, parents and, and kids and stuff. And one of, one of our friends, I think was, I don't know, I don't know how it worked. I think she was interested in maybe bringing me in as a speaker. And I think she asked me like, oh, how much did you charge? I was like, oh, you know, I, I kick off at 10,000 pounds. And she's like, 10,000 pounds for a talk. What? She's like, are you charging me right now for like every single conversation we're having? And, you know, and I, I kind of laughed and I, and I told her the story of, you know, there's, there's this urban myth, urban legend that uh, the, this woman does a restaurant and she spots Picasso, Pablo Picasso sitting at the table. Then you've heard the story and she goes over and she asks him, Oh, would you do a doodle for me or something? Would you draw something? And he draws something. And I think he says, Oh, that'll be 10,000 or a hundred thousand euros or whatever. And she said, but you just took you 10 seconds to do it. You know, that's ridiculous. He goes, yeah, but it took me a lifetime to do it in 10 seconds. You know, when, when I, when I, when I go into companies and I charge, there's a couple of reasons why I've increased my rates over the year. One of them is that so they pay attention. You know, I've actually gone to companies, I don't know about you, where there's no buy-in from leadership. It's like a tick-the-box exercise, right? They're just like, oh, let's just bring this person who's going to say some funny things or whatever weird things and, you know, and tick. We've given them some motivation or whatever whatever they want to put it down. So what I found is that the more companies pay, the more they pay attention and the more leadership shows up, right? And again, I think for you, it's about the problem you solve. So I, I, I know people who charge 25,000, 30,000. And it's, and it is, it's, 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 it's a lot of money. But when you look at it from the perspective of what problem it solves for a company, it's a fraction of what it would cost them if, if they, if they didn't have that problem solved. And I think that's why if people listening to this who are getting into the speaking business, if you take anything from what I'm saying is that I started at 250, I was actually doing free talks. Then I was doing 250 pounds. Then I remember charging 500 pounds and that was mad. I was like, oh my God, surely no one's ever going to pay any more than that. And I went to 700, went to a thousand and someone challenged me saying like, you're a, you're a five to 10,000 speaker. It's like, there's no way I could ever do that. And then incremental over the years, the more I talk, the more I felt comfortable. And still to this day, when I say my fee, I feel a little bit up, oh. but every time it gets a little bit easier and eventually you dissociate and detach yourself from it. And like now I'm, I'm no longer emotionally in, attached to the response, which I don't know about you, but was a big, big game changer for me. It's kind of like, oh, it's this, if you don't want, that's okay. A little bit like if you went to a nice shop to buy a piece of clothing and you took it off the rail and you're like, oh, this is all, how much is this? And they say like, oh, 500 euros, whatever. And you're like, that's really expensive. The shop would be like, okay. Yeah, I, I, I see. I <laughs> perhaps I always had an inflated opinion of myself that I don't necessarily. I might suffer from the opposite problem. I, I <laughs> one thing that I do have sometimes is that 
particularly particularly if I've just had a, a, a couple of gigs before and I know that it wouldn't take me 10 hours to to prepare part of me just wants to do it for a lot less than I should charge just because I enjoy it so much you know if if I'm doing a talk this week and someone wants me to do a talk three days later and it's the same talk I, I'm almost inclined to do it for almost nothing, just because sure it's one you know one more chance to speak. One more, but anyway, it's a terrible commercial idea. But occasionally, I've had people say, "Would you do it for us?" Like I would do it because it's rehearsed. I like it. I'm just gonna have fun for an hour. But you know that <laughs> that's not how the business works. Well, I think I think you know what I because you know when I used to teach around public speaking and this kind of stuff, what I would say is you've got to think about it as like this. Well, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, right, for people listening, but. I would say there are two types of speakers. You've got public keynote speakers and platform speakers. And and keynote speakers is that. It's kind of like a transactional fee. We pay you to come and, and give a talk and hopefully you change the way we think, act, or see you know the world differently or whatever. And then you have a platform speaker, which effectively you don't really care about getting a fee. You just care about being exposed to more people so they can buy your then services, consultancy, products, or maybe your other talk or whatever it is. And I think... I know I, I balance between both. Like there's certain events, they, they, they don't have a budget or they're not going to be able to afford my fee. So I said, look, instead of paying me whatever it is that you want to pay me, here's what I'm looking for. Like who are the people in the room? What kind of exposure can you give me? Can you include me in the mailing list? Can you interview me on a podcast? Can you do like, just so I can be more exposed to this. But when I go there and I talk, then I know that people in the, in the room potentially will want to bring me into their companies. I've done that a bunch of times where I've spoken at events either for free or almost nothing. And that then led to clients who could actually, you know, afford and pay and want to, and want to invest in my fees. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the biggest problems of not having a very tight structure and sticking to it is you go off on tangents, and you know the the second and third, you know the second the, the second half of of most of the stuff that I wanted to ask you about, which had to do with with culture and purpose and how stories interact with all of them. You know, we, we've blown our time <laughs> completely out of the water. I'll come back if you'll have me. I'll come back and when, when my book comes out next year in September 2022. If you'll have me back, I'll, I'd love to be back. And I, I, I'm sure I'm sure I can make the I, I can make the accommodation to have you i mean if you if you don't come up with you know medical emergencies to change the yeah. the, <laughs> the recording date over and over again you know i i obviously was very worried about you it affected the rest of my the rest of my activities but 100 uh... <laughs> that's why probably like next time we'll, we'll stick to we'll stick to the date but um i mean I've, i can go i can go five minutes over okay so so let's just let's just touch on that just so it's not so i've not teased people and not given you anything so you can pick one of the two Right. So when it comes to 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 purpose or culture, if if you had to to share with someone with a company, for example, if they say, well, but why does like why would storytelling have anything to do with our culture or with our purpose? Your culture is how we do how, is the your culture is how you do things around here. Your purpose is why you do what you do. If you can't convey those messages in in a vessel that people get and understand and can get behind, it's game over. Storytelling is that bullet. It's the magic bullet that you're waiting for that will cut through the noise and enable people to really understand what is it you stand for? What is it that you're trying to achieve? And people overcomplicate this, man. As simple as that, that's what I would say. I just like, if you want to make sure that people understand what it means to show up, you know, and be excited by the work that you do, even when it sucks, because it's going to suck, you know, there's no such thing as like, 
a job where 100% of the 365 days you're going to be there are bliss. Ain't happening, right? That's what I would say. I think that definition is true also for marriages and parenting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, everything is, every, you know, you, you know, you've heard this, overheard this, everyone's heard of this, but like how we do anything is how we do everything, right? And so if you understand that effectively we're all hardwired to connect through stories, then anything you're trying to say within your company that you want people to pay attention to or care about, you better damn sure that involves a story of some form. Not necessarily like some flourishing story, but like I walked in the shop the other day, you know, no, it can just be like, uh, is what we're saying clear? Is what we're saying important? What are we missing? What's the clunky bits? And because my dad's a musician, my dad, I don't think I've, this, I don't think I ever talked about this in a podcast unless, unless you can call me on it, but my dad's a musician. He's a jazz player, right? And what I recently realized as I'm writing this book is that story like music is about rhythm. And when you hear a piece of music and there's an off key, it goes, like, ooh, like you hear it, right? It's the same thing in a story. We, we, we can all learn to play story in such a way that it's harmonious, right? Like that it just, there's these clunky bits. And so when you're in a company and you're trying to board new talent, trying to retain talent, or trying to get people excited about the new direction, because a lot of companies that come to me for some weird reason, even if it's not explicitly told me in the, in the first meetings, usually are going through some kind of drastic change culture change, whether that's an acquisition from a, from, a, from a competitor or a super fast growth stage of the company. They have an excessive amount of income capital that just come in and they're re recruiting a whole lot, a lot more people. And they usually come to me, right? Like, how do we not dilute the culture? How do we make sure we stay on track? And so we go through all these different processes, but one of them is what's the story you're telling about where you're going and why it matters, right? And everything, you know, we haven't got time to get into this geeky stuff, but when I go in a company, I always say this as a joke. I say that <laughs> the place that I look for to know more about your culture than anything else is, is your, uh, is your kitchen, your boardroom and your bathrooms. That will tell me everything I need to know about how you treat each other and how, how you value the place you work and, and why you do it. Yeah. There is the way I answer that question. And it's something I've, I've usually mentioned in my keynotes. There's a Jeff Bezos quote that uh, brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah, and, and your culture are the stories that people share about you when you're not in the room. 100%. It's, you know, I, I just think that people overcomplicate things. And if we had another two hours, we'd talk about it. But one of the things is someone listening to this, actually, I hope that this is something they can get. Culture is, is some sort of abstract thing that you can't influence. I've heard stories of one person coming in a company and radically transforming, changing for the better or for the worse, a culture. So if you understand that and you understand the culture is made of people, then if there's something that you see that doesn't fit or feel right, then you have an opportunity to speak to it or to at least try and do something about it. It's not always easy. I get it. But I often find a lot of people, me included, I spent 10 years as a victim mindset in culture, thinking that, why is nobody not seeing what I'm seeing? Why is not anybody caring about my feelings? And, you know, all the, calling out all this stuff. What I realized going on the other side is that, first of all, people can't be necessarily mind readers. And most people I've met, they're trying their best and it's hard. You know, it's hard to get it right. And it's, and it's, and it's a scary, like leading people is scary, right? And so we get it wrong as leaders and managers. We all get it wrong, but I just wish that people could spend a bit more time exactly what you're saying about the stories they're telling, but also the story they're telling about themselves and how powerless they are. 
I wish that would be a story we could change. And on, on that note, if people want to find out more about you, n not a book that hasn't come out yet, and yeah. but, but now they know to expect it, but, yeah, but yeah, for yeah. everything else that is out, is uh, do you want them to go into marklerus.com? MarkLewis.com. Yeah, MarkLewis.com is probably the easiest because they can find everything there. They can find the Unconventionalist podcast. They can find how to get my first book and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, that's the best place. And then I have a newsletter that I send out. <laughs> I want to say regularly, that'd be a lie. It's sporadically. So I just send an email usually about something that I've come up with a client or something I'm thinking about or something I'm working on the book. And I share that and people say that it's, you know, interesting. So they want to you, you have a you have a surprising newsletter. Every time it arrives, people right, go, oh, exactly. I, I'm yeah. still subscribed to this thing. <laughs> That's exactly Let's see right. what this was again. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to steal that. I have a surprise, <laughs> I have a surprise <laughs> newsletter, which is you never know when it comes. It's like, that's exactly right. It's totally intentional. Yeah, totally the, I, I think there must be some sort of business reason why that's a good idea. Because if you get it and you don't like it so much, it's not often that you're going to unsubscribe straight away. But yeah. if you get it, it's two in the same week or two in a week's yeah. run, you go, I, I really don't like this stuff. I'm going to yeah. If it's once like, I'm not sure I really love this. And it's three months later, the next yeah. one comes. They might yeah, just catch yeah. you at a good time. So That's exactly right. That, you know, predictive sending is what I do. So <laughs> it's like, it just determines how, how attention you are at that point. In yes. Time. Yes. All right. Well, Mark, uh, thank you very much for, for your time. And you. this, this was great. Awesome. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. And until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little. And when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it. And it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch, or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn or visit my website, storypowers.com.